I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. Today we have a pretty interesting conversation. It's going to be the start of a series of conversations I will have with this gentleman. The gentleman's name is Coop. Coop is, uh, he is what you would call an introvert who is very interested and curious in history and philosophy and he draws a lot of parallels from history to the modern day and he's very good at diagnosing and dissecting what you see playing out in front of you from a historical point of view our mutual friend Gord who you've heard on the show introduced us about a week and a half two weeks ago and we started chatting back and forth and decided, Hey man, let's do this. We got a really cool, um, idea for a series that we'll just keep moving forward today. You're going to hear about, um, objective reality, um, ideology and how the death of nations and how that all plays in to what we see going on around us in modern times. But before we dig into that, don't forget to visit my Substack, tommysalmons.substack.com, and uh, subscribe, listen, and share this podcast while you're at it. All of my podcasts are up there at tommysalmons.substack.com. So share the podcast. Let's get these numbers up. We I've been seeing a, a lot of increased growth here lately, and it's looking good, man. So I appreciate all y'all listening, and let's just keep it up, man. All right, man. I'm here with Coop. What's going on, buddy? Not much. Just killing an afternoon here in the middle of lovely Hamilton, Ontario. Way to your north. Way to your north. Um, so I think, uh, what, we met like a week ago, something like that? Oh, like about a week and a half. Yeah, a week, week and a half ago, yeah. Yeah. And here we are. I, uh, We're going to do the hard work now, the heavy lifting. We are. We are. Um, so I think, uh, what, what you'd like to discuss is, uh, is, uh, the beginning of the great divides that we see in society. We might as well, uh, start at a beginning. It's actually a, a division in how we prioritize value and why that value now seems so separate from the reality that we live in. We've got uh, different components of how we assemble information, or I should say the components of our brain and how we think that allow us to assemble information. And uh, it's kind of like a democracy that works in our head with each one casting a vote as to what our output is going to be or what is our final thought on it. Um, I'd like to, there are many and they're complex um, and how they interrelate, but Predominantly, uh, um, we have a conceptual mind and a, a rational mind. Um, and uh, they both serve their purpose. Uh, the conceptual mind of which I speak is, is, is born out of the necessity to solve problems um, in that uh, we come up with a concept first. And all of this is very very base, but it has to, uh, I have to establish a footing from where we're going to go, of course. 
Um, the, the concepts are evolved out of necessity um, to solve problems. Uh, they are the hypothesis that we apply a scientific method to. And as such, uh, the conceptual mind is, uh, is the birth of the opinion, so to speak. You have an opinion about how a problem should be addressed, uh, about how a solution can come about. And then you test it against the, the reality of the situation, those, those limit, limitations, those objective uh, aspects of whatever problem you have. It's, it's got to be looked at it as a tool, and, and it's probably the tool that, that we use to the greatest extent that separates us from, from other animal species. Um, and the issue is that uh, basically the tools that conceptualization um, represent are, are tools that initially were birthed out of the requirements for survival. Um, and when we communicated our concepts to uh, uh, solve these problems, as I said, they're untested subjective opinions of an outcome. Um, now, we share these uh, with others in a, in a tribal sense um, to more or less unilaterally determine where resources are going to go at regarding who has the best subjective opinion or concept in, in solving a problem. Now, the issue, again, that we run up against is that uh, as a result of, of it being an opinion and the result of there being a limited resources is that, that only one or two suggestions can potentially be, be utilized before a solution is found. And Nobody wants to be the village idiot in that situation. So, so we all grow quite attached to our opinions or the ways that we see to go forward um, because status ultimately is, is given to those who come up with the concepts or the, the subjective notions as to how a solution be, should, can be found. Um, and if, if the solution is indeed found, then that person gets the pat in the back. Um, so we have a, that's our attachment to our opinions. Um, now, the issue that we've gone into is, uh, is the separation from survival um, that, that we have in our conceptualization now. Um, we started developing a, a civilization that, uh, that, that created advancements that allowed for us to have leisure time or, or entertainment. And as such, um, concepts took on an other than survival purpose for our society. Um, now, when now, that happened, you, yeah, yeah. Real quick, I'm sorry. I just wanna, when, when, when we're talking, we're talking about concept and then, and then leisure, there there was a period as you as you were pointing out those with the best concepts those with the best opinions that were able to to solve problems were then regarded in, in high esteem so the the existence of leisure is not always a bad thing it's just the it, it's the overabundance 
of leisure? Is that actually what we're getting into at this point now? Well, it's, it's, it's not necessarily an overabundance of leisure um, in the sense that um, leisure and, and the allowance or separation of, of, of concepts being purely a survival tool. And mm -hmm. it, it, what it did was it allowed for advances in further leisure to, cer to a certain extent. We call them technological advances now. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, every everything everything in your kitchen nowadays is a, is a, an appliance that was created by a concept that was created at a leisure in order to create more leisure time. Uh, right. Your your oven, you don't have to split wood for it. Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So it's so it's not necessarily that leisure is a negative thing, um, but there was a, a definite divide in, in society as to who had the leisure and who did not. And, and certainly that's, that's the beginning of, of a class divide um, where you had uh, wealthy individuals or, or those that had having more leisure time um, than those whose concept, concepts um, and opinions still had to be directly applied to survival and directly tested against the reality of their situation um, with very dire consequences for, uh, for making the wrong decision or having the bad opinion or, or having an incorrect concept because they had limited resources with which to solve problems. Um, the other class of people um, had the leisure. They, they were able to, to make mistakes in their conceptualization. Um, their conceptualization, their subjective reality was not attached to uh, uh, survival um, so much. They could afford to make mistakes in their opinions. They could afford to make mistakes in the concepts. They could screw up left, right, and center, and it didn't make any difference because they were still going to get food on their table. Um, now, the problem is when you have a... <clears throat> status attached to conceptualization itself um, still remaining despite the fact that the conceptualizers uh, did not create concepts that were directly related to survival anymore. So they still were able to gain status due to living in a subjective uh, conceptualized reality that was separated from survival despite the fact that it did not necessarily benefit the whole. Um, and so you had the, the birth of a, a, a pondering class who could afford to wither away the days, um, dreaming about this or that or the other, and didn't have to be concerned about it being tested against reality. And of course, just as I said, they, they still became very attached to their concepts and their ideas. Nobody wants to be the village idiot. Um, so that kind of brings us up to the point um, where it, it starts becoming recorded in history. Um, it, uh, you could say that uh, it, it reaches back as far as uh, the, the biblical story about Nimrod who created the conceptualization of fear within outlying peoples 
in order to bring them within the walls of the city that he built. So using the concept of fear um, and conceptualizations of fear, he was able to bring people under, under his power. Um, but that's, uh, that's very brutal and direct um, compared to the, the nuance that, I, that I'm hoping to, to bring up um, as it relates to uh, the Greeks and philosophy where we start getting the first um, exhaustive dialogues on the differences between objective reality and, and subjective reality. Um, and that starts with uh, Plato and uh, Socrates, ultimately, or Plato and the Sophists, to be more exact. Um, Plato, Plato believed that there was like a, a hardcore objective reality, that uh, words had a meaning and that those meanings were uh, universal, if not, if not mutually defined. Um, in other words, two people could might not necessarily agree on the meaning of a word, but the intent of the word um, was that stood outside of both of both of those individuals' opinions. And they were called the platonic virtues, so to speak. So there was a good, there was a just, for example. Um, and it and it was just that uh, humanity applying itself to these things could never actually reach the perfection of those things, but they were nonetheless very real, objective things. The sophists on the other hand, and you can actually check out uh, Stephen Hicks um, regarding sophistry. Um, he, the sophists believe that what was more important than truth, an objective truth was uh, rhetoric, right? Uh, whether or not you could convince people of what you were saying was true. Um, relativity, in the sense that everybody has their own truth and it's not necessarily a fixed thing. And, uh, and, and retribution, recompense, revenge, uh, any number of these things were, were used as uh, a conclusion to a rhetorical device. Um, or, or it could also be a complaint um, because everybody loves complaining and everybody loves hearing people complain and everybody loves relating to those complaints. So rhetoric was used to convince people of a truth. And then once people believed in that truth, it didn't matter what the actual truth was because it was transitioned to what people believe. Um, the relativity, relativity aspect, was that there could be no truth ascertained as long as there were individuals perceiving something. And if there were individuals perceiving something, then everybody had a different definition of what they were perceiving. And therefore truth was just relative to your situation. Um, mm -hmm. the, the device of revenge, recompense and retribution, I think it was more just part, part of the uh, wrapping up of the rhetoric tool in order to curry favor with the crowd. Now, and, were, uh, they, were they attempting to diagnose how people acted uh, upon events uh, occurring in their lives, or were they trying to make a, an, an objective absolute, this is all that matters 
type of argument whenever they were talking about perception equals reality? Well, the only way that you can perceive uh, rhetoric and relativity as being as having any meaning at all is if you are in the class of people for whom conceptualization is not attached directly to your survival. Right. Right. Because even it doesn't matter what time in history you go to, right? It is not the it is not the people who conceive of the war that fight the war. It is the people the people that do not have luck, the leisure to conceive that end up fighting the war. Uh, predominantly, um, wars have been started, uh, wars were started um, based upon survival demands, uh, competition for resources. But then as civilization evolved, um, wars were fought over rhetoric. People were convinced to go to war by by the devices of language, um, the relativity of the situation. In other words, you had to be relatively better than your enemy um, in order to feel motivated to go and, and, and kill them. You could not perceive them as being the same as yourself. And of course, the, the final device, we have to get revenge on these people for a perceived wrong. Um, in that in that sense, uh, truth is out the window. Um, any real reason for sending young men off to kill other young men, um, if you want to look at it as an objective, uh, in an objective sense, um, there is no rational re reason for it. So, um, and that's that's a bit of a tangent, but sophistry, to a certain extent, is the beginning of uh, the beginning of political dialogue in that sense um, using using words to convince people of a truth um, and keeping your rhetoric in a relative or or a clouded sense so that you were not specific so that people could get whatever truth they wanted out of what you said as it relates to their own perception so this um, would be this would be where the 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 philosophy and the principle goes out the window and the ideology comes in. This is this is where it goes out the window. Um, principles principles require uh, absolutes, and as much as you can say there are no absolutes, there is that entire uh, that entire fallacy in that saying that you have created an absolute. Um, an absolute is the base requirement for the unity of any and every society. And that absolute is based upon the bedrock reality of survival. Mm. And so when people say, oh, well, there are no absolutes, um, I say, well, you can kind of reverse engineer that from the state of death. Death is an absolute. Right. Right. There's no half dead. <laughs> you are either absolutely dead or you're still alive. So 
So that is the basis of, of an, ob an objective view that is maintained by a class that is still objectively rooted in decision-making and conceptualization and holding opinions on matters which are directly related to their survival. Now, Socrates appears at a time where, where you had a lot of individuals in a leisure class due to the mercantile explosion of the Greek city-state. So you had a lot of wealthies um, who had children that were interested in education. Um, so Socrates uh, came up within that, that group of individuals whom he was instructing. Um, and there were other schools that, that were still based upon uh, the objective schools of philosophy. And so they went head to head to head. And I'd like to make note, we don't have anything on the sophists. We don't have very much literature that, that were written by the sophists. And that is because, because in the political sense, the objectivists uh, won the argument, um, which uh, <clears throat> unfortunately it was too late to save uh, uh, Greece at that point. But nonetheless, they, they won the argument because of the eventual outcome of the sophist rhetorical device in dissembling Greek society. So it was almost like uh, too little too late did they realize their mistake. So what happened was uh, Socrates started teaching these young, uh, young men of elite and wealthy families that, uh, that relativity and rhetoric and subjectivism um, as a, was a priority concept in developing a proper way to think and look at the world. Now, I'm not going to suggest that it doesn't have its place. Um, it certainly does. If you're, it, it, it kind of piggybacks on the concept of empathy, being able to understand what another man may be going through um, and, and that it may be the cause of why he thinks differently than you. Mm -hmm. but, but that goes as far as that class divide, right? Because the class divide also represents a point where you cannot understand um, or empathize with an individual because you're not relating to the world in the same way. Right. So if you have that division in a society and, and a consequent struggle between who or which school is going to direct society, then you have uh, a ultimately created the soup that is going to destroy that society. Now, in my opinion, it's a, it's a natural thing that occurs. Um, any successful society creates a leisure class. And that is, uh, that is the, the result of success. And, and as such, every society therefore is going to face that, that divide 
And the natural result is that there is a split in that society. And we've seen empires come and go based along those lines. Although to tell you the truth, a lot of historians like to like to cloud it in, in uh, resource issues or a grain shipment didn't come in from Africa or there was a particular war that happened that, that broke the empire apart or there was a succession issue. Um, but, but ultimately... Even, well, I was going to say, even if, it, even if the, the physical characteristic that created the, the balkanization or the destruction of that empire you know, were occurring, they were recurring because of the, the, of the subjective nature of thought, the, uh, and the, and the rhetoric that, that yes. was, that promoted that type of, like, it's like, it's like when you look at the United States today, the promotion of printing money in fiat currency could very well be the thing that leads to hyperinflation. So the objective reality of hyperinflation is created by the rhetoric that it's okay. Modern monetary theory says it's okay. You can just print your ass off all you want. Yes. Um, and, and that's uh, the disconnect uh, that, that represents a, a, the disconnect that ultimately ran down the center of, of all collapsing empires. And it, it, the issue was not that they had these problems. The, the issue was not that there was like a, a, a war that uh, that cracked an empire apart. The issue was not that there wasn't a grain shipment that made it made it there. The issue was that the issue was that the dialogue within the people did not allow for a unified response to these things. Right. Mm -hmm. So you had. Uh, the conceptualization of urgency perhaps coming from the objective thinking survival-based conceptualizers who were looking at starvation um, very imminently and those that were wealthy who believed that they could conceptualize a better and more permanent solution but were not addressing it with the urgency that was required. Um, so in that sense, you had uh, uh, Rome trying to solve the problem of always having a good grain supply, ignoring the immediate shortage of grain, right? And therefore, they could not unify the country under any particular argument they may have been having amongst five different sects in the Senate discussing this issue. Um, so if we go back to go back to the Greeks, in that sense, um, Socrates was was deconstructing the the objective reality of his students. He's most famously known for what is called the Socratic method, which is nothing but the deconstruction of meaning. So this is where the post postmodernists stole it from. Was was Socrates? And that Socrates would keep asking the question why, or keep asking the one of the five W's that were related to whatever was being proposed until until whatever question was being asked was distilled to, to meaninglessness. Um, now, when you have a, an apathy generating philosophy like that, that suggests 
that everything is subjective and relative, and at the same time suggests that that subjective relativity renders everything meaningless, then you have the you have the solvent applied to the glue of a society or a civilization. So the, the concept of a society or civilization, and therefore any steps take, taken to maintain its cohesion or for its progress are rendered meaningless. Um, in fact, at that point, you could start, and this is what was applied by postmodernism, and this is the third part of retribution, recompense, and revenge. You can start pointing out how these associations or these objective uh, uh, binding agents within a society are actually uh, oppressing or, or stopping um, other peoples and their relative sense of existence from thriving. Um, so once you've made everything meaningless, you can attribute a different effect to whatever apparatus it is that you're describing. Um, as such, um, the concept of, of the Greek city-states <clears throat> um, started to dissolve um, as, as a unified structure. And, uh, and the, there was a recognition of this um, as being a negative thing um, by, by the people who actually held the power, um, which were predominantly men that were allowed to vote because they were willing to put their lives on the line to protect the unity of the culture. Mm -hmm. And they saw their children being corrupted by meaningless um, deconstruction of what it is they were willing to lay their lives on to defend. And so Socrates was charged with corrupting the youth. And as such, uh, it's kind of made a, it's, it's been made of as a, a joke, but it actually had a very real and substantive um, charge behind it. Um, in corrupting the youth, Socrates was actually uh, charged with a soft form of treason against the state and that he was creating a generation that would not uphold the values of the state through mm -hmm. through corrupting their minds by deconstructing the meanings of of things that held society together mm -hmm. I, I think we can find some parallels in today's university system with that maybe just um, a little bit but maybe just a tiny bit <laughs> I think the difference. I think the difference today, though, is that they the the political system uh, of modern times embraces the corrupting of the youth because they recognize their ability to utilize rhetoric on their own. You know, thanks to people like Edward Bernays who wrote po propaganda and and the understanding of how propaganda and rhetoric can be used to manipulate and and steer full complete populations in the direction they want them to be steered in order to gain more power and control well the the interesting the escalation of approval of of that way of thinking is directly related to 
the fact that Western civilization um, today is not assailed by the Persians, the Parthians, the Scythians, or or uh, or the uh, other major powers that were were literally a direct threat to any Greek hegemony in the area. Um, so therefore, our survival requirements are not so much hinging on our unity, or at least that's the way we perceive it. Or I should say that's the way, that's what we've been deceived into thinking. Um, but for the Greeks, that, that still, that attachment to the objective was still very much uh, uh, relevant to its survival. Its unity was 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 absolutely necessary, despite the fact that 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 they were able to afford the leisure conceptualization through that class divide. It was still very much accepted that they needed warriors. That they needed a unified block to stave off the barbarians. Um, well, that's what, we don't um, have it. We don't have any barbarians today. Yeah. Um, what we what we have are a lot of people that are bored, and so the realm of conceptualization is allowed to go unfettered and unchecked by by any any uh, objective reality. Um, in that sense. Uh, we've almost hit a point in society where anybody that dares remind us of reality is unpersoned. Um, mm -hmm. And that is a, a, that is a great tribute to the damage that has been done to the human spirit since we absolutely required conceptualization as a tool for survival in that it is the tool of our demise um, at this point. It's, it's predominance um, in that we don't have any more unity. Um, it's, I, I've, I've talked with several people about this and I kind of grew up in a small town. Um, even if you didn't like a person in a small town, um, it still, it still behooved you to find out the best about that person and bring it forward and bring it out of them whenever you could because you still required the skills and services that, that person offered the community. Mm -hmm. um, in, that, in that sense, you would seek to find the objective points of unity with that other individual, even though a subjective opinion of them was negative. Yeah, um, he could in, have been the that, only plumber. He could have been the only plumber in that town. You don't want to be without a plumber, you know. Like, yes. yeah, yes. you're you're gonna you're gonna find a way to unify, and you're gonna find a way to work together and live around each other. And 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 this brings us to what we had talked about on the phone before, Dunbar's number, and how the outgrowing that has probably created even more, you know, of this division. And and the, yes. the need the need for tribes to break up. Well, and, that's and again that going back to that point where a society naturally breaks or is broken, is when it becomes so conceptually prioritized 
that there is no unity and therefore the extreme objective uh, barbarians uh, come crashing through the gates mm -hmm. um, because there is no objective defense of those gates because of that split. Um, so when a society hits, hits a certain point, you have too much leisure time, you start to get a priority and status given to concepts that are not relevant to survival, you still have a class of people that whose opinions and concepts and, and, and subjective notions are directly related to their survival. And they usually break off. They usually go their own way. Um, and then that cycle starts again. The conceptualizers that remain, the leisure class, the, the, the wealthy, um, whose concepts are not related in survival are then taken over by the Alaric, the Visigoth um, and his army. Because as I said, nobody objective is there to lend hand to an objective defense of that civilization. And I mm -hmm. think that that's kind of a point where we're reaching now in that, uh, that the threshold or governing capacity for, for uh, leisure is kind of uh, hit its hit its point. Um, I, I've looked at a, a few indicators of this um, historically, and it seems to to kind of match. Um, I can look at uh, art as we as we have today. Is it's directly correlated to the degree in which conceptualization has started to poison a society in that art loses its ability to touch an individual except for through the facetious notion of distraction. And I think it's been called uh, uh, selling out, so to speak, or, or in industrialized music or industrialized art or politicized art. Um, the, the, the modern art movement to a certain extent represents the watershed moment where you had people whose concepts were absolutely unrelatable to anybody who ever worked with their hands because that's just a fucking banana sitting on a toilet. Um, mm -hmm. No matter what you say or think that it is to an objective individual whose decisions to purchase things are, are based on survival compared to the individual who will pay $1.5 million for a banana sitting on a toilet because they believe that it means something, <laughs> uh, represents a, a, a very clear indication of a society in decline, right? You know what I was thinking when you first started talking about art, I was thinking a few years ago, I think it was at, in San Francisco at one of their art galleries, they had this, uh, this velvet rope section it was roped off and it was a red box and that's all it was it was a red box yeah. and it was like okay it's a box so it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a priceless work of art yeah exactly okay. um well you can uh you know this is this is kind of interesting because this is something that i've i've looked at over the last few years and I'm I'm really I'm a really big heavy metal fan. 
All right. So if you look at the metal scene that was coming out in like the 80s or even the hard rock scene at the, in the late 80s, early 90s in, in the U.S., in the 70s, uh, especially the 70s, you were getting these revolutionary bands like Pantera or, or Alice in Chains, Nirvana, you had Jimi Hendrix. You had all these bands in this 20-year period that were just remarkable. But if you look at the music scene in America today, it's very rare to find an American band that uh, a new upstart upcoming American band that's anywhere as good as its European counterpart. It's 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 unfortunately shameful um, because you got to think in between those periods of time, right? where you have uh, genuine output and industrial output that starts to gain dominance, you have a, a generations of individuals, generations of individuals who through that p- point in time where they could most emotionally uh, attach to music as an art, like a teen- when you're a teenager, you have entire generations of teenagers being denied uh, a genuine connection from a genuine artist. And instead they're experiencing that art in an industrial sense. And they blink and that short period of teenagerhood is gone without them ever encountering a genuine art that is speaking to them. now, things like that make me sad to think about. Um, but nonetheless, that is, that is part and parcel to the problem when we have the over-conceptualization um, not, related to, not related to the, to the genuine or the real or, or not, not related to the objective sense of quality um, that we all can experience. Um, and this touches actually upon another... Uh, another great discussion about this. Um, it was had by uh, uh, Robert Persig in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, um, where his, his character is uh, a philosophical teacher, a teacher of philosophy. And he, he hits a, a point where he is trying to figure out whether or not quality is a subject or an object, objective thing. Because certainly there are, are quality items, right? Um, mm-hmm. that, we, that we can see are, are fashioned with quality. Um, the outcome is a quality item, whether it's a quality hatchet, whether or not it's a quality chair, whether or not it's a quality car. And there, there are also things that are quality that are purely subjective in I can say that is quality art and you can say it's a piece of shit but quality is still applied to it mm-hmm. um, so in that sense the argument um, between the objective and, and it being hinged upon survival necessity and the subjective being attached to a tool with which we, we use to solve problems rides that line on that same that same 
uh, that same point that is made about quality in that it, it has two different aspects to it and that the best, the best solutions always have a conceptual aspect to it that is necessarily tied to the objective reality of it. Um, and regardless, uh, if you go too far in either direction, in either, either extremes, you're going to have negative outcomes. Um, Ayn Rand, for example, is an extremely objective, was an extremely objective uh, thinker and proposed an extreme objectivism. And what we know from that is that an extreme objectivism um, leads to a, a lot of death. Um, Pol Pot was an extreme objectivist and therefore he slaughtered anybody that even wore glasses because it indicated they might've been a conceptualizer, <clears throat> right? He only wanted people that worked with his hands in the new Khmer empire. Right. Right. Not, not people that solve problems. And, uh, and I think that that's quite often mistaken as he looked at these individuals as being potential uh, uh, challengers to his power. He did not look at it like that. He looked at, he looked at them as being individuals like Socrates who would eventually erode the glue of the society that he was trying to create. So not a challenge to his power, but a challenge to the environment in which he wished to exert his authority. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so that's a, that's a pretty good indicator. Like I see a lot of indicators of where history is more or less mainlining a, a, a very specific, um, almost uh, pigeonholed concept of power as being the only dynamic that that operates through its ebbs and flows but uh it, you cannot you cannot have that individual almost single-mindedness focus um take place within such a unique complex sets of circumstances that history and people and tradition and culture have have offered us and that we're losing a lot when we don't understand the nuances and we accept just the 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 block of history as it's presented to us by quote experts not experts um and and that's why i think uh that's why i think this argument between Socrates and, and subjective sophist reality and, and is, is kind of overlooked. Um, uh, it's very tied into the way we look at things to the point where sophisticated is usually associated with people that live in urban areas who are not directly related to uh, working the land with their hands to put food on their table. Um, <laughs> sophisticated is from sofa oh, okay. um, um ah, where yeah, else you, would you like well i was going to say when you when you think of like sophisticated you're you're thinking of of the person that's cultured that is is they're they're looking you know they've been looking to other 
um, cultures for for these solutions for these these you know historical solutions or or you know that that is educated in Eastern culture and and brings brings Eastern art to the West and things like that. You're looking at these people that have the the leisure and the the income to be able to explore all these different realms whenever you think of it. So so they're not living and I've heard this said before um, that when you have enough money, the the entire world is your country. You don't have a, a country. You yes. you live wherever you like. And so they can afford to to be casual in their their thinking and and relative in their thinking because you know in their personal lives you know the the objective law of the land is relative to where they are i mean their their lives their lives are you know relative to location to you know the the weather around them or the conditions around them so there's there's a certain amount of reality that that belongs in that conversation but when you allow that conversation to penetrate um like like we were talking about the 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 academy and to penetrate the generations and to start shaping and forming the thought of the entire nation then you are setting yourself up for disaster because you are not preparing yourself for the objective uh realities around you that is absolutely correct. However, there is one thing about that. The sophisticated class, right, who who have made the world their their nation, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. they they do so and and freely do so and are allowed to have their relative viewpoint simply because the individuals whom they hobnob with in those other nations are also individuals of that same leisure class. And if they, if there if was an actual, uh, a true relativity, right? As opposed to a, a cloistered relativity, then they would see that the, the basic issues of survival and why objective uh, reality is, is a un- more universal is that the people that are in that class whom concepts are still attached to survival all have the same issues throughout the world they all have the same values throughout the world the the family unit is still valued it doesn't matter what country you're in because Mm -hmm. that concept of the family unit and the unity within that family unit and the focus of a family unit is very much hinged to their survival and it doesn't matter whether or not it's it's uh uh working class Philippines or working class Mexico or working class, you name it, right? Right. Um, So there is more in common amongst those individuals that are still connected to the objective reality than there is amongst the individuals that embrace relativity and therefore stand as, as islands unto themselves. So they, so they think. Now, mm-hmm. that comes into a, another another topic of the discussion is when you live 
in a conceptualized uh, reality or where everything is relative and, and subject to your perception. Um, you do not like being confronted with any reality that is going to oppose what your opinion is. Now, this goes back to what I said earlier about nobody wanting to be the village idiot and therefore they get really attached to their opinions mm -hmm. in a personal sense. Well, you are more attached to your opinions in a personal sense if they've never been checked by reality. And if you're of the leisure class who lives in that conceptual reality, you have never been checked by reality. And therefore, you associate your opinion as being the predominant means with which you engage the world. So any, any objection or any front that anyone or anything proposes to that opinion becomes immediately classified as an enemy of the person. Right. You're not just attacking an idea. You're not just approaching an idea going, hey, here's some issues with this. It becomes intentionally, intensely personal. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes an even more so intensely personal when that same individual who has not been checked by a reality. And this, this is attached again to tribalism. If, if an individual has not undergone an initiation ritual that necessarily binds them to reality, which is the point of an initiation ritual, right? Um, then, then they are allowed to project themselves through their ego in the same manner that a child does. And they are allowed to maintain that through having their leisure class, through the development of their conceptualized world and reality as unchecked by an objective reality. Mm. And as a result, you start seeing that disdain for uh, the objective class from the conceptual class who make up its leadership. So that's where the, the disdain for the plebes comes from, is because the plebes do not need the the subjective opinions of leaders in order to get by on a daily basis but those subjective uh, relativists still require the food that the objective realists grow right and they and they despise the fact that reality is a necessity as opposed to not as needed as them or their concept i said it the other day I was, I said, um, they hate you because they can't live with you, but they can't survive without you. That's correct. That is correct. <clears throat> um, and I think we see plenty of uh, examples of that contempt almost on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, uh, just blatant lying through establishments. Um, with an assumption that uh, with, that their opinion is overriding what you can see with your eyes. Um, right. And, and a and lot they, of people refer to it as gaslighting. Or they're just, like, they're, it's almost like they're intentionally trying to make you feel like you're crazy, like you're a radical, like you're an extremist. Because what yeah. you are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis is not what they're telling you you are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes, absolutely. 
Um, again, um, this just leads into all of those steps in the decline of all of, all of those other societies in that uh, um, uh, you're not starving, you're still eating mice, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, <laughs> is uh, Rome being besieged by the Visigoths, the, the leadership. Well, I mean, we can look at even even as recent as two years ago, you can look at the the news coverage of Venezuela. And if you look yep. at specific news outlets, they're walking through the grocery stores in the upper upper uh, class part of town saying, no, there's no food shortage in Venezuela. And then, oh, and then I, I know a guy, you know, I met a guy through a friend of uh, not not of ours, but of mine and Gord and who lives in Colombia. And he's like, it, it, it's distressing to see how these people live. But if you listen to certain, you know, certain voices, you'd never know anything was going on. Exactly, exactly. Um, now, this is where the light at the end of the tunnel is. Um, is there is a point where, where there's a general consensus that enough is enough. And in a society that has had it pounded into it that uh, violence is not an answer, then the only natural response is going to be just ignoring the individuals that are in within that conceptual space, that mm -hmm. subjective conceptual space. Right. And carrying on with life in an objective and real manner and looking at this collective class of individuals as just being batshit crazy, um, not worthy of note. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent that that has started to happen when you look at the decline of uh, CNN ratings um, and other major news channels, uh, mm -hmm. their ratings going through the tube because there is a guy sitting in his living room in front of a camera that's a straight <laughs> shooter giving people uh, uh, something that is very much attached to reality that 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 they can relate to and <clears throat> this individual sitting in his living room is getting more views than CNN is mm -hmm. um, and in that lies the threat any establishment it doesn't matter whether or not it's the the Roman Senate doesn't matter whether or not it's uh, it's a uh, France just previous to the to the French Revolution. Um, it, it doesn't matter. You can take any of those any of those situations. It's it's not the physical threat that these establishments fear, and by establishments I mean establishments of, of subjective relativity. It's being ignored. They fear being ignored um, because when they are ignored then their concepts cannot carry any meaning no matter what their rhetorical devices are. Right. So they rely upon having a bullhorn and an audience. Mm -hmm. And they clamber to maintain control of the bullhorn under the incorrect auspice that it will maintain the audience. And 
The fortunate thing is that it just doesn't. The unfortunate thing is that an individual will rise within the ranks of that establishment who simply speaks things the way that they are. And then to that individual, all power is given. And that has been falsely associated with the term populism. Populism has been associated with dictators, strongmen, demagogues, um, and that's just not the case. Um, populism is the, the, the play that every politician makes with their election promises before the election. They try to make the most populist appeal to people and then, of course, go back on everything that they promised. Uh, when a populist appeal is made and the individual sticks to their promises, that's when they become a threat to the establishment because they're not playing the game the way it's the way they've established that it has to be played. Right because they are actually taking their rhetoric and what they say and drawing it into an objective reality as opposed to spinning it off into a subject relativity that has no actual meaning. Mm -hmm. Now, regardless of whether or not you want to draw any comparisons um, to other societies or other social, social aspects, we are at a point in in our society and we have been here and, and we've been here since uh we've been here since the 50s late 50s early 60s so we, we can't fool ourselves into thinking oh this is going to happen within 10 years um <clears throat> the the decline of society and that that objective versus subjective argument started with the the boom of american uh, society in the fifties, right after. Well, uh, it, it, that is it. I would I would strongly relate it to the the outsourcing of personal responsibility. Absolutely. And you know, um, in in which you started public public education began to be the only education available, at least for the vast majority. Um, you had um you needed you know both parents working in a home it, it destroyed at least the cohesive nature of the family and what the family actually meant you no longer had the extended family um because people were beginning to travel across the country away from you know grandparents and uncles and aunts looking for career opportunities across across the country and things of that nature so that 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 in, that entirety uh, the entire aspect of that just kind of just starts breaking that that glue as you had said earlier and you know then you leave an opening for those spewing the most popular rhetoric sounding the best appealing to everyone's emotions in in the most cohesive manner um to gain power and you end up with rhetoric like hope and change where everybody can draw their own interpretation of what hope and change is onto that person that fixture you know yes, that's called with, that's called casuistry yeah it's explain called that because you did we did talk about that 
Um, because sophistry is a is a rhetorical device that was developed um, most heavily by by uh, the Jesuits um, as a as a as a subversive measure in education. Um, the, all of the royal families of, of Europe had uh, their princes and, and whatnot uh, instructed by Jesuits in casuistry because it became the means of political discourse through which one could uh, one could lie or tell the truth without doing either, and its interpretation would be left up to the individual. So, for example, if you said, "Hey, you should go and see this movie," and I go and see it. And I don't particularly like it, but I don't want to offend you. So you come back to me and you say, did you see it? And I say, yes. And you say, did you like it? And I say, well, it was interesting. You're going to make an assumption that I enjoyed it and that I liked it, even though I said none of those things. Because mm -hmm. suicide would be using a neutral term, right? Um, with either an inflection mm -hmm. or, or in a context in which the individual already has a a positive assumption towards an answer, right? Um, in that sense, that is the political discourse of not answering a question, but appearing to have answered a question. That mm -hmm. is the the regular the regular meat and potatoes of any politician anywhere saying anything. Right. Um, it's it's no direct answers. Um, and it was used as a, a diplomatic device, and that's why it was taught to to uh, the the uh, elite youth of Europe back when the aristocracy made a difference um, as a way to a way to not offend anyone, um, because slight offenses could end up in huge wars. So it was kind of good to avoid that if you could. Yes, and there were a couple of huge wars. So. <laughs> yeah, they had, a, they had a few. They had a few. Yeah, we don't want to see any more of those, I promise. Um, but nonetheless, it is a device that is used against used against mass populations um, to make them think things that just aren't true, but they're bear themselves to blame for not demanding a concrete answer right, right. which is another another way that the elite express the elite subjective relatives relativists express their contempt for contempt for the people who are still attached to a, an objective reality um, right. oh well you know well they're not actually demanding an answer mm -hmm. right yeah so well, and this, clearly, uh, I mean, and this goes everything. I mean, everything from political slogans to the slogan at your, you know, your local, you know, dry cleaners. They all have these little, little casuistries. Is that how you say it? Yes, casuistry. Um, yeah, <clears throat> but they, it, they all it, deal that, in that type of language. That objective and subjective divide is the divide upon which you can put any team or any group or any discourse or any argument or any discussion or any politic or any philosophy, um, it runs along that same line of divide. It, it, it doesn't matter. Um, so 
in that sense, uh, this is where principles that are based in objective reality um, have to start coming back into the forefront of those things that we require in order to hold a society together versus uh, various ideologies. Uh, if we want to turn it back to the Greek- well, hold, on, hold on, hold on. I want to. I want to get. I want. We can. We can turn it back next time because it's been just over an hour, and we're trying Perfect. to. Yeah. Yeah. So. 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 so next time. I think that was a we'll pretty discuss, good place to stop. Yeah, we'll discuss. Uh, we'll discuss uh, principles and ideology next time. Yeah, I think that. I think that's perfect. A perfect transition point. All right. Okay, that was Coop. And uh, I'm sorry about my sound quality. I was trying out a new set of earbuds because my last set got all jacked up and um, it, they just did not connect to my computer well, um, did not have a good sound quality for my computer. I will, um, next week, I'm going to start carrying my microphone with me on the road and uh, we're going we're gonna to try to do things that way. And uh, we'll move forward from there. So I, I do apologize about the sound quality, but I hope you got a lot out of that. I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm really looking forward to the next conversation. So again, that was Coop. I am Tommy Salmons. Late.